Well, we're in Galatians chapter 2. And again, big picture, Galatians is about living in the freedom of the true gospel. And here in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul has been talking about the source of the true gospel. Where does this true gospel come from? It, it comes from God, not from man. And so Paul has been showing that and kind of proving that. He's been talking about how his call, his conversion confirms that, his, his calling by God to ministry confirms that. And he's also going to be sharing now about how some, some conversations with others have confirmed the source of the gospel being from God. And so we're going to look at the first five verses of Galatians 2 this morning, and then we're going to, to look at uh, the next five verses next week. But let's, let's go ahead and read all of this together. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able to, if you'd stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Paul writes this. He's talked about his, his conversion and his time, uh, and then he says in regions like Syria and Cilicia, and then he says this in verse 1 of Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We come to verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, this morning, again, our request would be, as has already been prayed, that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word this morning, and that we would be encouraged and, and edified strengthened in you in our faith. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We protect those things and hold them close to us, those, those things that we value. Things that we find valuable, we, we protect. So a little over 10 years ago that I lost everything that I had on my computer. I was just, just gone in some of the world's greatest sermons. That's, that's how they were lost. Just in, the, just in a moment, they were gone. And I know what some of the more judgmental among you are saying. Uh, why, didn't you, why didn't you back everything up? And 
I did. Like I had this external hard drive, and, and I, I lost my, my hard drive crashed, and so I took this external hard drive, and I tried to recover the information from, from that, and, and it, was, it was dead also, and it was just this, this horrific feeling. And since then, I have gotten very paranoid about backing up data. I have a hard drive. I have an external hard drive. That external hard drive has an external hard drive that I back it up on, and then there's the cloud, and then I, I print everything out and dig a deep vault in my backyard and then just stick everything in there as well. You know, we, 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 we protect the things we value. A few years ago, we were on vacation, and we were, we were on a run one morning with, with Hannah, and I was, I was talking with her, and, and she had reached that age where she didn't have her driver's license yet, but a lot of her friends at school or at, at church had their driver's license, and they wanted to go do some things with her. And so she was talking about when we got back from vacation, things that maybe she could go do. And I said, I don't know, Hannah. Like, I know, I know this is a little crazy. It may sound a little bit crazy, and, but I, I'm just uncomfortable at this point. I need to kind of think through this. And, and you are, I said, you are, you're, you're so valuable to me. You're so precious, and the idea of putting you in situations that are potentially risky, I, I just don't want to do that. She said, yeah, Dad, that is crazy, um, but I understand, right? And so we, we talked through that. When the boys came along, I'm like, yeah, it's whatever. Get whatever car you want. I, I'm less crazy now, but no, you, you protect the things. You protect the things that you hold dear, that are precious to you. You protect them. You're passionate about protecting them. Bethany Community Church is precious. Bethany Community Church is, is precious to me and it's, it's precious to you as well. With all of her imperfections, with all of our imperfections, with all of the struggles that we have as individuals, with all our imperfections as a collective, as a group, as a community of faith. This is a precious church. And the gospel message that calls us into relationship with one another is a precious message that we must strive to protect. The gospel message is, is a message, first of all, of how we come into relationship with God and then of how, relation, of how we come into relationship with one another. It's a, it's a message of how we are sinners and yet Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. The gospel message tells us that there is nothing that you or I can do to enter into relationship with God, that we can only come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of his finished work on the cross. That's the gospel message, and that's, that's the message that we as a church must strive to protect, to keep clear. And the gospel message doesn't just stop with us coming into relationship with God and therefore coming into relationship with one another. It's a message about how we continue in relationship with God through faith, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of, of exactly what we do here and what we don't do in this area of our life. The gospel message tells us that we continue to walk in love with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is a message that we strive to protect. Why? Because it's precious. It's valuable. 
here's kind of the, the main idea that I want us to, to talk through this morning as we look at, at Paul and his protection of the gospel in Galatians 2. You and I at Bethany Community, those of us who are, are part of the community of faith here and whatever other community of faith you're a part of, whatever church you're a part of, if you're visiting with us this morning, we strive to protect the truth of the gospel for the joy of the saints and the glory of God. You and I strive to protect the truth of the gospel. We want to preserve the, the truth of the gospel message of faith alone in Jesus Christ for salvation and for sanctification. We strive to protect the, the truth of the gospel for the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints, and so that God is glorified. That's what Paul is concerned about with in these verses this morning, and it's what you and I need to be concerned about with as well. And so let's, let's look at this text, and we're going to see three things that Paul is concerned with regarding the gospel, and three things that we should be concerned about regarding the gospel as well. And here's the first one. Number one, number one, we need to be concerned about the clarity of the gospel. We need to be concerned about the clarity of the gospel. Hopefully you're there in Galatians chapter 2. And if you look just a few verses earlier, remember where we ended in Galatians chapter 1. Paul was in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, as we come into Galatians chapter 2, we see that Paul is involved in a meeting. Paul takes a meeting. And there's kind of three things that I want you to notice about this meeting that Paul is engaged in. The first thing I want you to notice is the, the timing and the occasion of the meeting. So again, end of chapter one, where's Paul? Paul's in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And what is he doing in those regions? Well, as I mentioned last week, we kind of take some of the things we see in Galatians and we take some of the things that we see in the book of Acts and we try to piece them together. And, and some of the things that I'm going to share this morning are, are kind of our, my best guess there's other ways to understand what's happening here, but kind of here's, here's what I think is taking place. In fact, you can turn back in your Bibles to Acts 11, if you'd like to do that, in Acts 11. So Paul's in the regions of Syria and Cilicia at the end of chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11, it tells us about some of the things that he did. Acts 9 mentions him going to Tarsus, and then Acts chapter 11 mentions his ministry in Antioch, which is in the region of, of Syria. In fact, you come to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, it talks about how the, the church in Jerusalem, where the church starts, that the church there is persecuted and people are, are as they're persecuted, they're, they go into other regions and they, uh, they begin to share the gospel with Hellenists, that's, that's Greek-speaking Jews. And then verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord, this is Acts 11, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So there's the church is there in Jerusalem. They hear about what's taking place in Antioch, and so they, they send Barnabas up to this region and say, hey, you need to check out what's going on among the, the people there. And it says that he, Barnabas comes. We'll talk more about Barnabas later. Verse 23, he comes, and he sees the, the grace of God. He's glad, and he exhorts them. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord 
with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So things are going well here at this church in Antioch. And it says that Barnabas looks around and he recognizes, hey, I, I need some help here. And who better to help me than Paul? And so he goes and he goes to Tarsus. He looks for Saul. He finds him. He brings him to Antioch. And so now a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So that's Paul and Antioch. And again, I think that's what's taking place at the end of Galatians 1. Now, we come to Galatians chapter 2. And Paul says that he comes back after 14 years, I think, or after a period of 14 years. And I think he's talking about from the time of his conversion to the time of coming to Jerusalem. It's, it's been 14 years. And he comes into Jerusalem for what's the, the second time. The first time is mentioned in chapter 1. Now this is the second time. And the question is, okay, so this time that he's mentioning here in Galatians, is that mentioned in the book of Acts? And I believe it is. I think it's in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. It says, In these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples, that's the disciples there in Antioch, they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so what's happening? Paul has been in Antioch. He's been helping this new church there. There is word, this revelation comes that there's going to be a famine in Judea. And so they say, you know what, let's, let's go to Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas take the money that they've gathered here and they go to Jerusalem. And I believe, and, and some people would disagree with me here, but I, I believe that that's what's taking place in Galatians chapter 2. And Galatians, the whole book, is written before the events of Acts chapter 15 when there's going to be this big Jerusalem council. I think that takes place later. But Paul and Barnabas, bottom line, they've gone to Jerusalem. And the original reason was because of this revelation that Agabus had that there's going to be this famine, so they've come to Jerusalem. And now there's a meeting. Well, who's, that's kind of the occasion of the meeting, the timing Who's a part of it? Look, look at the text. Who, who comes to this meeting? Paul says he's in Jerusalem with Barnabas. We've mentioned Barnabas already. Who is, who is Barnabas? Barnabas, he is an amazing guy. He's a crucial leader, leader in the early church. He's a, a Jewish believer. And even, even his name is kind of a, a cool name. Barnabas is first mentioned in Acts chapter 4. His name is actually Joseph. And in Acts chapter 4, it says, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son, son of encouragement, he sold a field that belonged to him and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How would you like to be such an encouraging guy that everyone's like, hey, you know what? Um, we're going to stop calling you Joe. You're, you're now son of encouragement. You're like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. He is a, he's a, an encouragement to the church. He's an encouragement to Paul. He's an encouragement to believers everywhere he goes. An encourager. So a good guy to have along. Who else is at this meeting? There's Paul, there's Barnabas, there's also Titus. Who's Titus? Titus was a Gentile convert. We're not exactly sure when he was converted to the Lord, when uh, he, was, he was brought to faith in Jesus Christ through God. But he's, he's there, he's a Gentile. He doesn't appear in the book of Acts, but he appears all throughout Paul's letters. Paul talks about him being 
a, a, son, a, a source of encouragement. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how Titus is an encourager to him. He's an encourager to the, the church there in Corinth. Titus is mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy. He's mentioned here in Galatians. He's mentioned, of course, in Titus, the book written to him. Titus is a great guy to have along as well, and we'll talk a little bit more about him and why Paul may have brought him as a Gentile to this meeting. Who else is at this meeting? Well, look, look at the text. It says, I, I set before them uh, those who seemed influential. So this is a, a private meeting among influential people, and later we're going to see that's people like Peter and James and John. They're there at this meeting. And there's one other group that's at the meeting that we'll find out is there later. It's, it's false brothers. And we'll, we'll talk more about them in a moment. So that's the occasion. That's the participants. Last thing, what's, what's the agenda and purpose? Why does Paul have this meeting? Look, look what the text says. It says, I, I went up because of a revelation. I think that's talking about Agabus' revelation. And I, I set before them. And that, that word means to, to, to lay out carefully, to kind of say, okay, here's from beginning to end, this is, this is what I want to present to you in, in sequential order. I, I set before them what? I, I wanted to, to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. You said, well, does that mean that he was concerned that maybe he had gotten the gospel wrong and he's been there in Antioch preaching the gospel, he's been all these other places presenting the gospel to the Gentiles and, and maybe he got it wrong? No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying, look, I, I wanted this meeting because as I came to Jerusalem, I recognized that perhaps there wasn't clarity concerning the gospel that there needed to be. That the message of the gospel as I got to Jerusalem, I, I realized had become muddied. And I said it before them. I said, look, guys, this is what I'm telling the Gentiles. And if you're proclaiming something different than that here in Jerusalem, there's a problem. I may have run in vain. And it doesn't mean that I, I, run in, I ran in vain and, and my work was useless. It means that you guys are in danger of messing up what I've done. He uses that phrase, in vain, several times in the book of Galatians, and it's, it's, it's referring to someone who's going to do something to undermine the work of God, potentially. Now, what does this mean that the Jerusalem church had potentially been muddying the gospel? It wasn't that the Jerusalem church was now affirming something completely different than what Paul was affirming. Paul's saying, the things that you guys are saying are potentially undermining the other things that you're saying and the things that I'm saying about the gospel. When I was in third grade, I, for some reason I cannot remember, uh, I, I decided I wanted to host a, a, an art competition uh, among my, my third grade class. I said, hey, let's have an art contest. And, I was not very artistic, although I was very judgmental. So maybe I just wanted to, you know, judge things. And so I, I, I passed around a little sign-up sheet, and, and I was kind of excited about getting to, to see all these drawings. I wasn't a very good artist, but my friends, I enjoyed watching, their, seeing their drawings. And so I 
passed around this piece of paper and was excited about this. And a, a young lady in the class came up to me. And she said, I would like to help you in your art contest. And I was afraid of girls and I had no idea what to say, but sure, that sounds great. And so the art contest came and people submitted their, their, their drawings and we sat down and, and I was going to announce the winners that day in class. And, and this, this girl looked at, uh, look, looked at the drawings too and she said, so I want to help. Uh, I want to kind of help announce these. What, what have you what have you decided is first, second, third place? I said, well, here's, here's third place, uh, G.I. Joe fighting Cobra. And uh, here's, here's second place, uh, knight fighting dragon. And uh, I just really like the, the, the flames coming out of the dragon's mouth. And uh, here's first place. I call it darkness. And she said, it looks like your friend Zach just took a black crayon and colored a sheet. I'm like, yeah, darkness. It's cool, right? And she said, I have some suggestions. I said, sure. And she goes, how about, instead of G.I. Joe fighting Cobra, how about strawberry shortcake and her friends have a picnic? How about this picture instead? Okay, I, I guess so. And instead of knight fighting dragon, how about girl with umbrella? I, I don't know, okay. And instead of darkness, which is nice, but isn't this picture much better? You know, uh, rainbow unicorn having lunch on the lawn with friends. I'm like, oh, I, I guess so. And I, I went up in front of the class to present these, these three winning pictures. And as I, the words came out of my mouth, I realized something, something terrible has happened here. <laughs> this is not what I had envisioned, you know. The changes seemed small. It was still my art contest, but the, the content had, had somehow radically changed. Truthfully, probably for the better. Um, although I did love darkness. I, still one of my favorite pictures, right? Paul says, look, I, I know you guys are still saying you're affirming the gospel, but, but guys, you need to understand something's happened here in Jerusalem, and the, the gospel is, is, is pure here in, in Antioch and what we're preaching, and I, I'm, I'm worried that, I'm worried that I'm worried that you guys are off. And I think this is why he brings Titus, right? Part, maybe part of the reason. Here's Titus. He's, he's not circumcised. He's not a Jew. Is he in Christ or is he not in Christ? You see, the reason the, the, the waters are getting muddied here in Jerusalem is because you, you're saying that it's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But at the same time, you're encouraging people in your church to go through the process of circumcision, becoming Jewish. Now, if that's going to become part of the gospel message, we have a problem. Because here's my, here's my friend Titus here. Here's the ministry that he's, he's doing. I, I just want to know, is he, a Christ, is he in Christ or is he not in Christ? If he's in Christ, then the things you're telling people to do in Jerusalem are a different gospel. That's kind of the content of the agenda and the purpose of the meaning. I want to know, did I run in vain or not run in vain? The clarity of the gospels... The clarity of the gospel is crucial. And clarity takes work. And getting to clarity in the gospel can sometimes be very uncomfortable. It's very interesting, a book called Evangelicalism Divided. It was written several years ago, but it's it about the period between 1950 and 2000 in the evangelical church. And it begins with the, the story of the church in England and some of the, the divisions that were taking place among the Anglican church and the, the work of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was, who was an Anglican pastor, and some of the, 
the problems within evangelicalism and there was these divisions taking place. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, "An, an evangelical, an evangelical is a person who believes truths essential to salvation and has experienced their, their power in his own rebirth. And here's the, the great divide. Some people put fellowship before doctrine, but we're evangelicals. We put doctrine before fellowship. In other words, we believe that you need to understand certain truths about the gospel and respond to those, those truths as God enables you to respond to those truths. You respond to them in faith, and, and as you do so, you become a part of the church. You don't become part of the church and then just, just on the basis of saying, oh, I, I want to be part of the church. Lloyd-Jones goes on, he says this, or people were accused him of, of, you're dividing the church, you're dividing the church, you're dividing the church. He says, no, no, I, I don't think so. People who do not believe in the essentials of the faith, the things that are essential to salvation cannot be guilty of schism. They're, they're not in the church. If you don't believe a certain irreducible minimum, you cannot be a Christian. You're not in the church. Have we reached a time when one must not say a thing like that, have evangelicals so changed that we no longer feel comfortable even making an assertion like this? Now, Lloyd-Jones was not saying, look, my church is the only church. Lloyd-Jones wasn't saying, I'm the only guy who has every point of doctrine right. He's not saying, you all have to agree with me on baptism, or you all have to agree with me on the issue of, of end times, or of how, uh, you know, how long a sermon needs to be. He wasn't saying any of those things. He's saying, look, there, there are just some essentials. Some, some irre, there's an irreducible minimum. There's a core of a gospel message that we all have to agree on. And if we don't agree on that, we are in severe trouble. Because if you don't believe the gospel, if you haven't responded in faith to the gospel, you're not a Christian. You can't be a part of the church. Paul gets this. He wants to be clear. He wants to make sure that we all understand the same thing about the truth of this gospel message that's so precious that we need to preserve. And so he's going to fight for it. Now you know that there are people in your life who have a fuzzy understanding of the gospel, right? You're in a relationship with them and and you guys both go to church, you both say positive things about Jesus, you both have the same, you know, radio stations you listen to. But when you talk with them about the gospel, there's, there's just a, a sense that you get, I'm not sure if they understand the gospel. I mean, they understand that there's a Jesus, they understand that we need to uh, read our Bibles. They, they understand some of these things. They've been in church a long time. But you see, I, I'm not sure they understand the gospel. What should we do in those situations? It's easy just to kind of say, you know what? I've heard them say prayer before we ate one time. They said in Jesus' name, I, th- I think we're good. That's easy to do. The hard thing to do is say, you know what? I love this person, and I want to make sure they understand the gospel. What does Paul do? Paul says, guys, let me, let me lay this out. Let, let's lay this out carefully and say, do we, do we believe the same thing? 
Now, as we do that, we're not, we're not doing so from a, a harsh, judgmental way, right? We're not saying, look, um, this is ex- you, need, you need to say these three things, and if you, don't, you know, if you don't have the Bethany Community bumper sticker on the back of your car, I'm very skeptical of you, and you know, if you don't have the, the Bethany, uh, I'm going to check for a Bethany bulletin, and if you're not listening to these three preachers, I'm going to say you're probably not a Christian. No, I'm not, we're not saying that. Remember what, what Jesus says to, to uh, John in Luke chapter 9, the uh, John is uh, telling Jesus, look, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. He doesn't follow you. He's not with us. Jesus said to him, look, don't stop him. The one who's not against you is, is for you. Look, this is, this is not some deal where we're saying you have to, you have to be exactly like us. But we're saying, look, here's in, in our relationships with our friends, with our coworkers, with those who'd say that they're believers, we're saying, hey, let's, let's talk about the gospel because it's, we're concerned that we are clear on this. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, just to talk about those things that are very basic. Focus on those essential truths. Do you understand, as you talk with him, you, know, you talk about sin. Do we understand what sin is? Do we understand that sin separates us from God? Do we understand who Jesus is? Do we believe that Jesus is, is the only way that a person can come into eternal life? Do we recognize that it's only faith in Jesus, not our, not our works? Those are some of the, the topics of conversation we, we try to engage in with those who are in our lives, part of our church, not part of our church, just the people that, bring, people that God brings into our life, believers, unbelievers, because we want the gospel to be clear. Here's the second thing Paul is concerned with, and we need to be concerned with as well. We need to be concerned about the perversion of the gospel, we need to be concerned about the perversion of the gospel. Look what happens next. Paul says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul says, look, there was a potential perversion of the gospel that was averted. He begins kind of with, with the good news. Good news, Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. Now, why would that have been a perversion of the gospel? There were other times, like with Timothy, where Paul encouraged him to, to be circumcised because his ministry was to the Jews. But Paul says, look, if, if Titus had been circumcised, this would have been a perversion of the gospel because it would have been Titus acknowledging that, hey, for me to be right with God, for me to stay right with God, I need to go through the process of being obedient to the law. That would have been a perversion of the gospel. So Paul says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Crisis averted. But, he says, but he says there were some false brothers. And, and look at, there, there are four characteristics of these false brothers. Let me, let me read what it says about these false brothers and then think about these, these characteristics of these false brothers with me. He said, yet there were some false brothers, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. And to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So what do we see about these, these false brothers? Number one, we, we see they were, they were people who claimed to be Christians but, but weren't. They were false. Knowingly or unknowingly, they were, they were either deceived or trying to deceive others about their relationship with God. They weren't really in Christ. Another thing we see about these false brothers is they realized that their understanding of the gospel was different, but they didn't want to come out and say that. 
They realized that their understanding of the gospel was different, but, but they were deceitful. They, they knew that they didn't believe the same thing that Paul and the other apostles did about Jesus, about, his, about the new relationship that they had with the old covenant. They, they knew that they were on a different page than the apostles, but they weren't honest about that. Instead, they were deceitful. Now, the same is true of the church today. There, if you look at the publishing world, you look at the blog world, you look at all sorts of, of media within the Christian church, there are teachers there are people of influence who know that they are not on the same page regarding who Jesus is, regarding the authority of Scripture, regarding what the uh, obedience to what God says about sexuality and about morality, about, about greed, about those sorts of things. They, they know they are not on the same page, and yet they aren't honest about that. There's, there's deceit. Another thing we see about these false brothers is that they, they wanted to influence those engaged in the discussion to bring them in line with their thinking. So they had come into this discussion that Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the apostles are having. They had somehow war, wormed their way into that discussion so that they could influence how that discussion went. And then finally, and this is very interesting, what was their end game? What do these false brothers want to accomplish? Like, why would anyone do this? Their end game was to bring Christians, those who are in Christ, back into the slavery of the law. And Bethany community, this is what I would tell you. Perversion of the gospel always leads to slavery. It either leads to, to slavery to sin as a person encounters a, a false gospel that says, hey, you don't need to be uh, accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't need to submit to him and his will for your life. Just, hey, pray this prayer and you're okay. It either that, that perversion of the gospel, licentiousness and law, lawlessness, or a perversion of the gospel leads to legalism, to a law-based understanding of how a person comes into relationship with God and stays in relationship with God. These people that, that Paul encounters are obeying the law, and their desire is they want other people to do the same. Now, now maybe they had some good reasons, good motives for their deception. Maybe they thought they were doing the right thing. Remember this, this last week or the last couple weeks, you may have noticed that at Southern Seminary, uh, Al Mohler was celebrating his, his 25th anniversary as, as president of the school. And I can remember talking to some people who were there before Al Mohler came and, and, and saying, look, the, the professors at Southern Seminary had kind of this, some of them there had this, this saying, we, we preach like conservatives in the church, but we teach like liberals in the classroom, Right? In other words, we don't believe in the authority of Scripture. We don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, some of them. And yet, we're going to preach like we do in churches, but then whenever we have the, the future leaders of the church, we're going to teach them like liberals so that they'll believe the same things that, they, that we do. And they would say they had good motives for that, and yet it's treacherous. They're deceived, and they're trying to deceive others as well, right? 
These false teachers don't believe that there's truly freedom in Christ. They, they don't believe there's truly freedom from sin and freedom from the law. And, and Paul recognizes that and he says, look, I, I'm not going to compromise here. I'm not going to just go along to get along here. And, and perhaps some of the leaders in the Jerusalem church said, look, this is, we got a lot of former Pharisees here. We got a lot of former people who are engaged in, in studying the law and, and we don't, we don't want to rock the boat too much. And yeah, they say some things are off sometimes, but, but, but we're not going to deal with it the way that we need to deal with it. And Paul is going to have none of that. Paul is passionately committed to not perverting the freedom of the gospel. And we need to be concerned about not perverting the gospel as well. I was at a banquet one time, a luncheon. I was talking with a, a leader of an evangelistic ministry, and, and he kind of introduced himself and an intern that was with him at this, this luncheon. And I asked him things about their ministry, and they're engaged in evangelism and, and so forth at, uh, with, with young people, and I can't even remember the organization now. And I said, so tell me where you guys go to church. And he told me what church he went to. I don't, don't remember. And I asked her where she went to church, and she said, well, I, I've part of a Roman Catholic church, and she kind of told me about this church. And, and I, I told her, look, I'm, that, that's interesting. I know this is a Protestant evangelistic organization, and, and I'm, this is very interesting. To help me understand, what do you believe about the gospel? Because I know the, the Roman Catholic church has some official teaching that I believe is at odds with the, the, the truth of the gospel, that a person is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. And I know that not all Catholics believe that. I know not all, not all Protestants believe that. So, you're engaged in evangelism ministry with a Protestant. What, what do you say? Like, what's, what's your gospel message? And this sweet young lady, uh, she said, well, I don't really know. I said, oh, okay. Um, well, help, help me. Like, what do you believe about how a person comes into relationship with, with God? Is it, is it just through faith in Jesus? Is it, is, uh, does a person come in a relationship with God by also needing to, to do the, some of the things that the Catholic Church would, would encourage a person to do or prescribe a person to do? Help me understand how that works out because I know each person kind of has a different understanding of how some of those things work out. She says, I, I don't know. Now, later, um, I really, honestly, I didn't think I was being mean, okay? But later I got an email, you know, when the, hey, uh, why are we being such such a mean person to my, to my intern. I said, boy, um, you know, I, I know I can sometimes come across a little, little passionate and certainly don't, don't mean to be that, but uh, help me understand how, how is asking a person in an evangelism ministry about the gospel mean? <laughs> but that's kind of where we've come to in the evangelical church in many ways. We need to be passionate about protecting the church against perversions of the gospel. And that means asking people and ourselves hard questions. Look, are the things that I'm communicating as I share the gospel and as I, as I do life with others, are those things that are in line with the truth of the freedom of the gospel in Jesus Christ or are they perversions of that and legalistic? You say, well, how does the church, how does the church struggle with legalism? Many ways, right? Many ways. And we must, first of all, be passionate to protect ourselves from legalism. In other words, I don't want to say this. I don't want to say, I am becoming someone God values because I do such and such, right? 
I don't want to say I, I am becoming someone who God will value more because I read my Bible this amount of time or because I do this and someone else doesn't. In other words, I don't want to point to the works that I do and say, these are the reasons that I am becoming a person that God values. That's legalism. And in the Galatians, I think the people in Galatia had, had first of all understood the gospel, but now they were struggling with sanctification, understanding how to, to grow in the relationship with God, and now they were believing that works were necessary. And also, not only do I protect myself against legalism, but, but listen to me very carefully here, Bethany, we also want to protect our, our, our church from legalism. We also want to very carefully make sure we are not saying, because this is what was happening in Jerusalem, we want to make sure that we are not saying we as a church are becoming people that God values more because we as a church are doing such and such. And so, and so you need to become more Jewish or you need to homeschool your kids or put your kids in private school or put them in public school or you need to read this book by Paul Tripp or by John Piper or by John MacArthur or you need to, to go to this Sunday school class or go to this care group. Now, none of those things are bad, Right? But when we say you need to do these things and become more like this group, and, and that's separate from the gospel, what have we done? We've begun to become a church that preaches and, and practices and encourages others to preach and practice legalism. Perversion of the gospel is going to enslave. It's either going to enslave us to a works-based relationship with God, or it's going to enslave us to sin and lawlessness as we abandon holiness. Here's the last thing we need to be concerned about very quickly here. We need to be concerned about the joy of the gospel. The joy of the gospel. He says here, I, I, I had this conversation, I had this, 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 this tough conversation so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And we're going to talk about in the coming weeks how, how the truth of the gospel is preserved for the people here in Galatia. But what I want you to see here is, is that the gospel is not just not the law. Does that make sense? <laughs> In other words, it's not, well, here's the law and here's the gospel. And the gospel is, is not law. So I don't have to do all these things. I have the gospel. No, the gospel is about joy in Jesus Christ. And it's far more than just not law. The gospel is the message of how I come into relationship with God and walk with him by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel message is the message that God, in his love for me before the foundation of the world, chose me apart from anything that I had done and in his grace called me to him. And as he, he called me to him, now I have the ability to be in relationship with him. And I am not just in relationship with him so that I am not under the law. I am in relationship with him now by his grace so that I can walk in continued obedience to him and joy and fullness of life. That's the joy of the gospel. Paul says, I wanted to protect you. I wanted to protect the gospel message for you so that you could experience the joy of the gospel. We strive, we strive to protect the gospel by God's grace. I don't have an external hard drive on my computer for the sake of the external hard drive. I didn't say, you know what? This external hard drive, it's super snazzy. It's awesome. Let's, let's do this. I, I have a hard drive because I want to preserve the, the contents, the pictures of my 
family, my phenomenal sermons, my pictures of my family. (laughs) We don't get passionate about protecting the gospel just so we can be passionate about, about being passionate. We strive to protect the truth of the gospel for the joy of the saints and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your grace in the life of our church. We pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to you. And we pray that we do so not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of you working through us. We recognize that apart from you, we are are dead in our trespasses and sin. And you have, have imparted life to us. And now as you give us your life, We've received the Spirit. We want to continue to walk by the Spirit, to walk by faith as you enable us. Father, protect Bethany Community Church from legalism, legalism that would rob our children of joy, that would rob our our friends of joy. Help us to continue to find our joy in our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and in our love for him. Let it flow out into love for others. Let us be gracious and kind and sacrificial for the lives, in the lives of of the people you've brought us into relationship with. Protect us for your glory, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.